Hi, uh, this is Mike Livermore, and with me today is Jakub Groek, an economics professor at the Warsaw School of Economics. Today, we'll be discussing artificial intelligence and the global economy, and his new book project, The Big Boom, Lessons from 200,000 Years of Accelerating Growth. So, Jakub, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's, yeah. it's a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Great. So um, maybe just to kind of get us started, uh, you could tell us a little bit about what drew you to economics as a field, um, as a field of research and uh, something to pursue both in graduate school and now, you know, pretty much your entire career. So immediately when I, when I started learning issues related to economics, I got interested in topics related to economic growth. Uh, I got interested in the mechanisms and sources of economic growth over the long run, okay, and at a broad scale of countries and maybe even the whole world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and in, the, in the recent book, pro or in the book project that, that we'll talk a little bit about today, that's pitched to a popular audience. You, you discuss some of your academic work there, but, um, but the way this is pitched is, is to a broader informed readership. So what, what brought you to, to this project and to want to engage in a substantial writing effort um, that's directed towards that broader audience? Yeah, I was thinking about these issues a lot. Um, and so I realized that, that my ideas go beyond what is traditionally, you know, the field of economics. Uh, and economics tends to know its limits quite well. So uh, I, I was transgressing those limits and I thought the, the best way for me to, to, to frame this whole process of, you know, thinking and putting all many threads together is, is to write a book uh, that could be also, you know, accessible Yeah, that's great, and that's so that's interesting. So it was it was both to reach the broader audience, but also it sounds like uh, a way of synthesizing some ideas that you've been having in a way that maybe didn't fit very well with the traditional economics research agenda. Yes, it's correct. Yes, uh, in growth theory, we always write formal mathematical models. Uh, we do test them using data, so that's a lot of uh, specific. Uh, concepts, specific methods and jargon, and that could be very difficult to understand for someone who is not deeply involved in this kind of research. So I tried to go beyond that and, and you know, uh, like frame the, the, the key ideas behind it, uh, not just uh, the details of, of calculations. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun to read, and it obviously covers a huge uh, temporal uh, territory, and I, I kind of the, the experience I got was a bit of a mix between deep history, um, you know, kind of very long stretch economic history, and then and some futurism. So it was, it was a lot of fun to read. So just to get into some of the ideas uh, that you that you have in the in the book, and especially those are that are most relevant to the themes of intelligence and artificial intelligence. One of the concepts that you uh, use and and um, kind of make up a big part of the arguments of the book is this idea of instrumental convergence. So maybe you could just explain um, for folks who aren't familiar with that idea what it what it means and what what it has to tell us about kind of the nature of intelligence. So the idea of instrumental convergence was first formulated in the context of artificial intelligence, okay, AI, uh, by Stephen Omohondro and Nick Bostrom. And what they say is that almost any final goal of this optimizing unit, okay, uh, an algorithm essentially, uh, almost any final goal would also lead to, to the emergence, spontaneous emergence of four um, instrumental goals. And you can call them self-preservation, efficiency, creativity, and resources. So... I also, you now thinking about this this emergence of, of those instrumental goals, uh, I kind of realized that perhaps you can even uh, you can even conceive the idea that these instrumental goals can emerge even more broadly, not just within AI algorithms, but but in fact also in living beings, including humans. Uh, 
and that would be interesting in the sense that like we are we've been thinking a lot like what drives our actions what drives our uh, behaviors what, what is the goals that we kind of tend to uh, tend to pursue uh, and there's been a long discussion with many angles normative positive and so on but I thought like in, in the positive sense like trying to understand who we are uh, maybe we can actually make use of this instrumental convergence thesis because it seems to me that that also humans tend to pursue those those goals okay we we, we like self-preservation okay we like efficiency creativity we, we we strive for resources so so this is all there um, and what, what this really has, the nice thing about this thesis is that it says that it's Maybe these four goals are not really goals in themselves. Maybe they are instrumental to something, you know, even a level higher. But we don't know what that would be. And maybe there is something. Maybe there is nothing. We don't know. But, uh, but, but, but from a wide range of possibilities, there emerge these these four uh, instrumental goals, which seem to be really, really widespread. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a fascinating idea, and the, and the application to. Um, you know, beyond artificial intelligence to biological life and to human society is is very, very interesting. So one of the um, kind of related ideas, uh, thought experiments that, that you spent some time discussing is uh, Bostrom's uh, apocalyptic pa paperclip AI. And I think this is related um, where you take an arbitrary goal, uh, you know, make paperclips, <laughs> this hypothetical, and yes. then the instrumental, all of these instrumental goals arise um, in, in furtherance of the maximized paperclip production. And, you know, the, the end result is that all matter in the universe is converted into paperclips. So, so maybe just kind of play out uh, the relationship between the, the, the larger goal of paperclip production and the, uh, how that translates into these instrumental uh, goals. Okay, so Essentially, you have to uh, to keep in mind your, your general goal, and then your efficiency in tackling it depends on the level of like broad intelligence, or which is okay, maybe a bit tautological, but this is really what what broad intelligence is, and how, how well you are uh, suited to, to to fulfilling your goals. Uh, so, whatever these goals are, um, so here in the paperclip example, I mean. The, the mechanism that tries to maximize this this goal of paperclip production would, would, would realize that um, you know if it's uh, switched off or uh, you know it, if it has a its goal changed that is that's not okay because that's against the goal that it it, it's, it wants to pursue it wants to maximize paperclip production so self-preservation is a natural let's say natural emergent drive that would follow because logically if you are switched off or if your goal is different you're not maximizing paperclip production right mm -hmm. so that's one thing another thing is efficiency of course um, you have a certain um, skill set okay <laughs> a certain set of uh, tools and, and, and a given amount of resources and given those resources you would like to Use them as efficiently as possible to towards the goal. That's that's the the second drive, which is, I guess, understandable. Then you may wish to uh, spend a part of the resources you have in in the pursuit of better ways of uh, going towards the goal. So, like for example, here you would like to, you know, do some research and do some. Some thinking on on how how better how to better produce paper clips, you know, uh, and then eventually you get to the fourth drive, which is to get more resources. Right? You, have, you, you if you have more resources, you can you know efficiently use them and produce more paper clips, and also you can spend a, a larger amount of of your resources on on thinking about how to do this better. Okay, how to how to improve your capacity, how to improve your efficiency. Um, so that's all perfectly aligned altogether. Yeah. No, this, this, this makes a lot of sense. And, and part of 
what I started immediately thinking about is, are there goals that are inconsistent with uh, instrumental convergence? And you mentioned um, some possibilities in the book, right? So if your goal is to minimize your own energy um, output or something like, or energy throughput, that would be inconsistent. You would just maybe with self-preservation or resource acquisition, you might just, you know, um, decide to end your to end, end your yourself as a cycle. Um, yes, yes. That's are there other you know? So so that so that was the is kind of my question is are there classes of types of goals that are inconsistent with that that don't not necessarily inconsistent but that wouldn't necessarily lead to the emergence of these three instrumental uh, goals. So I guess there are um, more qualified people, uh, including the mentioned Professor Nick Bostrom, who who are uh, thinking about these things, and they would tell you better um, if there exist such such uh, classes and how to how to define them um, best. Okay, um, I'm sure it's not true that for every goal uh, you would have those four uh, emergent drives. Because of simple counterexamples, mm-hmm. um, but it also seems like if your goal is open-ended, so it's not like like you know divide four by two and then you get the answer and you can switch right. off because you you, know, you just solve your problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but if it's open-ended and and then okay, I don't know what, what, how to go further, but uh, but I would expect uh, in most really really in most most cases. Uh, these drives to emerge yeah it seems that maybe there's something about maximization in there um you know if there any time that there's a settled uh you know the, the idea is to reach some some settled state um or minimization um that there sure, could sure. be yeah and, and of course yeah, uh, of course if you maximize x square I mean, if, if, if you maximize a simple function like i don't know minus x squared and then there is just a simple uh, maximum at zero and, and you're done okay then it's not only about maximization per se but uh, yeah that it, the goal has to be sufficiently uh broad in a way right, right. not very right. specific right um great so so yeah so that's so that's interesting and the idea again is that um we can observe lots of different uh actors or agents in the world um kind of carrying out the task of self-preservation, maximizing efficiency, creativity, resources. And we don't necessarily, we can't infer much about the goals of the entity, uh, the ultimate goals of the entity. So for all we know, for example, we are actually Bostrom's paperclip AI, human society, and our goal is to maximize the production of paperclips. Uh, we just don't know it yet. I, 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 what, do you, what do you think of that, that possibility? I would expect some hints, uh, you know, behind our actions. Maybe we would be somewhat more preoccupied with paper clips than we actually are. Uh, so I guess this is probably not the actual goal that we have. Uh, but so that's, that's an open question if there exists really one, or maybe, you know, it's a variety of goals or a spectrum of goals or... Or there is really nothing beyond that, okay? It could also be the case that, that right. there is really nothing beyond those four goals. Right. Or some, or, or any arbitrary thing, kind of a randomly selected goal that then leads to the to the four instrumental um, goals. Yes. Um, yes. So, so another um, uh, important idea that you introduce and, and spend a lot of time discussing in the book is the, the distinction between... Um, hardware and software, and you have kind of some specific definitions that you assign to those terms, and the relationship between software and hardware and prior economic transformations, kind of the big transformations in human society, like the cognitive revolution, uh, the industrial revolution, and, and recently the, the digital revolution. So, so what is this distinction as you conceive of it? Because it's much broader than the traditional uh, you know, kind of, uh, I think the standard definitions of these terms as, as people use it in common language and, and what does this distinction, what, what light does it shed on, on the kind of economic history to date? Yeah. So I guess the starting point, the, the, the helpful starting point is to think about the classical economic dichotomy between capital and labor. 
So people have been thinking for, for centuries now that that production in the economy is because of having capital and because of having labor. But I think the real key distinction really runs across this uh, standard uh, dichotomy. Um, and so, so I would say that the main distinction is between, uh, on the one hand, that which produces action, okay, physical work, work in the physical sense, and that is what I call uh, what I call hardware, okay, that which uh, has the energy and produces a certain physical amount of work, and then on the other hand. Uh, you have uh, what I call software, and that is uh, what that which provides instructions for this physical action. So uh, that which uh, takes in data and processes the data and provides instructions, provides some 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 code for action, and that is what what I call uh, software. So with these two broad definitions, you clearly see that. Um, you can have people and you can have machines both on the hardware and on the software end. Um, and I think it's it's useful to look at this um, these major leaps in in the development of the human civilization, these major technological uh, revolutions, as as breakthroughs either in terms of hardware or software. So either in terms of uh, getting better access to energy and producing therefore much more output in the physical sense, or uh, in terms of software, that is, in our ability to learn and improve our cap capacity to process information. And if you look through this light, it, it really nicely uh, orders uh, these major leaps in our history into like a pendulum-like uh, uh, sequence of, of, of revolutions. So, like first you have the emergence of the Homo sapiens, okay, then that would be what you would call a, a hardware revolution. But then we had something like, something which is sometimes called the cognitive revolution, uh, which is supposed to, ha to have happened about 70,000 years ago, give or take. It's, it's not, not yet clear because here the evidence is really uh, archaeological. So, um, and so that would be... Uh, like an evolutionary series of changes in our brains that eventually led to the to our ability to um, cumulatively gather knowledge and pass it across generations. So it was not not really a, probably primary not was probably not primarily a leap in our ability to to think or process information, but uh, in communication and you know, and therefore the ability to store the information across generations as a as a species okay as a society not as a as an individual being okay so that's a that's a second revolution okay then yep. go, going ahead we had the agricultural revolution or sometimes called the neolithic revolution the beginning of sedentary agriculture that's already very well researched um, we know that there was a sequence of such revolutions in, in various places in the world. We know um, the first uh, plant species that were domesticated. So, so this this is um, clearly a hardware revolution. Why a hardware revolution? Because that was a major increase in the humankind's ability to um, to get food. Okay, and food means energy, and therefore. Uh, the, our species could could allow itself to feed more people and, and increase in, in numbers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, then you had uh, a scientific revolution. Um, so, well, maybe the dating is not that obvious, but uh, I would place it somewhere in the 16th century uh, in Europe. Uh, and of course, there were some pre predecessors to, to this revolution. So there were achievements, you know, in ancient Greece and Rome. There were achievements in, in ancient China and, and so on. Uh, but really, uh, it should probably be, be placed after uh, the printing press, <laughs> Gutenberg's printing press, and after uh, we had the first universities in Europe and, 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 and the scientific method was developed 
And that was a big leap in our ability to to systematize and, and improve our understanding of the world and, and just, just accumulate more, much more knowledge more efficiently. Um, so that was a software revolution, right? And then again, a very, very important hardware revolution, that is the industrial revolution, like a big leap in our ability to to get energy again and put it into productive use, uh, thanks to the steam engine, internal combustion engine, electricity, like all, all these uh, technologies combined were really key, right, to uh, to the industrial revolution, which was a hardware revolution. Okay, and now again we have um, the digital revolution. Now we have uh, okay, dating again is not not really certain, but I guess just like uh, Gutenberg created the, the printing press, which was instrumental in, in, in generating the scientific revolution. Now we have, I would say, like uh, maybe Alan Turing and his team and, and also other collaborators who, who were the first to, to create the digital computer. And that was really instrumental for the digital revolution. Uh, but the essence, I think, is not whether it's digital or not. It's really the essence is that it allowed us to massively increase our capacity to to store, communicate, and process information, okay, data. So now we are in the in the you know, in the digital era. Um, um, yeah, our capacity to 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 gather, communicate, and and process data is is now doubling every kind of three years or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and part of what I think is is particularly helpful about this framing is, um, you know, we're talking in all of these instances on each of these revolutions, um, let's say beyond the cognitive, well, it's hard to say, the cognitive revolution was a long time ago. <laughs> so things were very different then. But uh, if we take the Neolithic revolution uh, forward, what we have are kind of, you know, packages of tools and technologies that are associated with these revolutions, right? So the Neolithic revolution, which of course, tools and technology themselves are combinations of, in a sense, hardware and software, because you have to have instructions for making the tools and the technology, for using the tools and the technology appropriately and so on. Um, and so the Neolithic revolution comes with various tools, um, uh, uh, you know, seed storage techniques, you know, knowledge about how to cultivate land and, and cycles of the year and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and then the scientific re revolution, even though uh, on your spectrum, it's a software revolution or revolution with respect to software, there's all kinds of tools and technologies that are a part of the revolution. You, you key in on the, on the printing press as one, um, and, uh, you know, there's developments in optics um, and the telescope and, and the like. And so, so these are really bundles of techniques, techni techniques, technologies, um, tools, know-how. Uh, it's just that they're, they're directed differently at the world. On one side is the, is the energy, essentially energy cultivation and exploitation. And on the other side is information processing. Is, is that a fair characterization of, of, of how you see the, 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 this process unfolding? Yes, I think it's 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 quite fair. Yes. Um, so, like for example, if you if you think about the difference in, in between the industrial revolution and the digital revolution, it's really that the industrial revolution was about hardware, was about our capacity to perform, you know, energy intensive, uh, energy, energy demanding tasks. Uh, whereas now the digital revolution is about processing information, so I think I think many people got this confused because now we're talking about like the third and the fourth industrial revolution, but these are no longer industrial revolutions in my perspective. Right, they're the, kind of of a different kind. So one of the um, the points, and maybe we'll return to this a little bit later, but just to kind of set it up that you address in, in the book is the relationship between um, these revolutions and technological development and institutions and policy, right? So you know, we might look at this, uh, this timeline and, and note that social organization is radically changing over this period as well, from hunter-gatherer societies to agrarian uh, kind of building into small city states. 
uh, ultimately to uh, nation states and international trade and international institutions and then the modern mass uh, mass state and, and globalized economy. And you know, one potential way to read this story is that it's it's institutions that are doing the the work here, uh, that science emerges in Europe uh, in part due to the printing press, but also due to the particular institutional um, the scientific revolution, as we know it, let's just say that, emerges in, in, in Europe at a particular time, uh, in part due to technology. But a lot of these technologies, movable type, for example, have been around for uh, yes. some years. Um, and so uh, so the story is that actually it, it was the particular setup of Europe and the decentralized nature of European uh, political life at the time that cultivates this, this revolution. I, I take it from some of uh, some of the arguments in your book that you're not a, a a fan of that theory of the institutions first theory but i'd be curious to hear um hear your thoughts a little bit more on that yes exactly so so uh, you, you can you can hear a, a discussion on uh, on people who who would think that it is the institutions that drive growth okay and that drive changes in technology and so on and there is a camp that would say it's the other way around it's the growth and the levels of development and the availability of technologies that shape institutions. And okay, you can have people who, who, who perhaps rightfully say that this is really a, a bi-directional re relation, uh, a virtuous or, or a vicious circle. Um, so uh, in, in my perception, it, it is more much more really the case that technology goes first uh, and not the institutions. Although I can I can imagine institutions that uh, are preventing uh, or postponing the arrival of certain technological breakthroughs uh, over time, uh, and like the example of the scientific revolution that you mentioned, it's true that many of the technologies that you know initiated this uh, th this major leap in our ability to. Um, to the process information, okay, were already available before, and particular many of them were available available uh, a few hundreds of years uh, before. Many of them in China, for example, and then there was a completely different institutional setup in China compared to Europe. And there are some some authors, like notably Joel Mokir, who claim that. Uh, that it might have been the case that you know this decentralization within Europe was helpful and the centralization of state in China was detrimental to the emergence of the scientific revolution. So you could have theories like that. Um, although I would say that okay, technologies do uh, diffuse across countries. Now they diffuse extremely fast, and of course in the history it took a long time to diffuse and. And you know, in the um, millennia ago, it was perhaps sometimes impossible for some technologies to diffuse. Um, so, yeah, I, I, bottom line of what I was trying to say is that uh, is, is that I think that uh, you need the you need the technologies for for revolutions to happen. They are uh, the key. But then, of course, you can have um, circumstances in which this is easier or more difficult for the change to, to, to really take place. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so changing uh, tax a little bit um, and, and kind of moving us more towards the, the present day and, and thinking about the, the moment that we're in, um, you know, and maybe thinking a little bit about this, this distinction between thinking of the, uh, of the current digital revolution as the kind of stage four industrial revolution 4.0 versus something totally different. Um, one distinction or one kind of uh, core economic or longstanding economic concept that you introduce in the book and, and, and do some work with is between rivalrous and non-rivalrous goods. Um, I kind of think of this as a spectrum from rivalrous through non-rivalrous to to uh, network effects and goods with network effects. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we think maybe, maybe we could just introduce that, um, these concepts a little bit for the, for the listener, and then maybe explain a little bit uh, about, you know, how using that concept of, of rivalry in goods 
potentially sheds light on uh, the current um, uh, revolution, the difference between hardware and software revolutions, and potentially uh, uh, sheds light on what the overall economic impact of, at least in the relatively near term, will be of, uh, of artificial intelligence. Yeah, so, so the concept of rivalry is due to Paul Romer, at least in economics, where this is this is the main, uh, main source we attribute uh, this concept to. Um, the, the idea of, of rivalry versus non-rivalry is the following. So, for example, capital and labor are rivalrous in the sense that you cannot apply them in two processes, in two places, in two factories at the same time. If, if it works here, it doesn't work there. And that's it. So that's rivalrous. Okay, that's uh, um, that's one. Uh, th th that's that's the one thing. But on the other hand, if you think about information or specifically technological te technology or technological ideas, uh, they are non-rivalrous. So that um, so that you can use the same idea, the same blueprint, the same architectural concept, and so on. In many places at the same time, without compromising, you know, its efficiency in the initial uses. Okay, so right. so you can, you can just apply them at the same time. Yeah, what yeah. I I teach yeah. this a little bit in my my environmental law class, and the way I explain it to my students is, uh, uh, a piece of cake is a rivalrous good, <laughs> right? Yes, what, yes. You know, we can only you know, if I eat the cake, you don't get to eat the cake, and vice versa. But a cake recipe is non-rivalrous in the sense that I can just copy it, and we could both make the uh, cakes uh, in, in, separately in our in our different kitchens. Yeah, so uh, my point here is that maybe we have uh, underestimated the fact that information in general is non-rivalrous. Mm -hmm. So copying information, uh, especially with these these days, with our current technologies, is really almost costless and, and almost immediate. So... Yeah, so not just the recipe for a cake, but also, let's say, uh, a song or, or a book, okay? Okay, the paper on which the book is written is, is rivalrous, but uh, but if it's just, just a, a PDF file, let's say, it's just very, very easy to, to copy and distribute. Mm -hmm. And so what does this tell us about the difference between software versus hardware revolutions, if, if anything? Okay, so one thing is that I would really treat technologies as part of software, not hardware. Mm -hmm. Indeed, because of the fact that technologies represent uh, information. Okay, um, so so that that is one thing. Uh, okay, so the main difference between the industrial revolution and the digital revolution, okay, with, between industrial technologies and, and digital technologies, is that they. Um, Perform different uh, different tasks. Okay, they they mm -hmm. they, they, they affect different tasks, um, and so f like we as uh, people perform certain sorts of. I don't know if this answer is, answers really your question, but uh, like we do some cognitive work and we we do some mm -hmm. physical work and mm -hmm. and those technologies that, that are really industrial and, and and help with the hardware part th these are that mechanize our work and then replace people with machines in in, in performing physical uh, tasks whereas the digital uh, technologies uh, automate uh, our our work so replace people with machines in providing instructions in processing data uh, so so it's a different 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 use okay different mm -hmm. different different type of technology and i think you know just to correct me if i'm if i'm wrong um in in mechanization which was part of the industrial revolution was part of the story of the industrial revolution um we're still talking about rivalrous capital you know a machine can only be in one place at one time once you do you, know, you can develop the designs for a machine and obviously there can be different instantiations of the machine uh, but it's quite costly it can be quite um, difficult to build those those new machines and so that creates a a barrier or at least this kind of rivalrous dynamic whereas if you write a piece of software that can replace uh, a bookkeeper in in a small business 
with a spreadsheet, with an Excel spreadsheet, that's very easily copied. And in, in essence, it's a, a non-rivalrous good that then just diffuses throughout the economy. Yes, 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 it's true. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind in this context is intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So there could be legal restrictions to copying information, right? Mm -hmm. One of them is, is, is that you may have patents on certain ideas, that you may have you know, copyrights on, on some, uh, I don't know, software or, or idea or, or whatever, right? Right. And, I, I, you know, I took another impl potential implication here to be um, uh, arising in your discussion of, of GDP and post potentially, at least I, I, what I take to be an argument that we might really seriously consider post-GDP measures or, or building on GDP measures for development. And of course, you talk about some of the alternatives that are already in the literature where you might have GDP plus, um, and then may take into account environmental uh, quality, or you could look at human happiness or some other uh, subjective measure like this. But you, yes. you offer something different. Um, so maybe explain a little bit about why you see limits I mean, there are known limits to GDP. It's not, no one thinks it's a perfect measure, but why at this particular moment, uh, those limits are becoming more stark and, and problematic. And, you know, what are some of your thoughts about what we could do to improve, uh, improve this measure, especially in light of the, of the digital revolution and, and its economic impact? Yeah, so, well, after some deliberation, uh, I, I actually come with this uh, concept, of, I mean, my view is really in the sense that we should not really improve upon GDP. It's just we should acknowledge that it just measures very well, but not everything that we care about. Mm -hmm. And of course, okay, this is not really um, a novel standpoint because, of course, we, we may care about, uh, you know, reducing inequality. We may care about uh, people's happiness, you know, work-life balance and so on. That, 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 that's, none of that is in, in GDP, of course. GDP just measures... Uh, how how much value added we can produce in a given period of time and, and okay that's a that's a measure which i think fits very well to the industrial era and captures like the totality of our um, production capacity okay in a way uh, that is realized in a certain uh, period in time so that that i think is very 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 helpful and and, and very instructive uh, but if we think about the essence of the revolution that we are undergoing at this moment, the essence is not really about producing value added. The essence is about uh, about information processing. And, and we've seen some, um, I mean, there is literature that, that, that documents that in the realm of uh, data processing, there, there is a, a growth process that has an order of magnitude faster rates uh, like, okay, the global GDP doubles every 20 to 30 years now, mm -hmm. uh, but our capacity to process information and the uh, volume of information produced by you know, the totality of all people and all digital computers around the world uh, doubles every two to three years. Okay? So it's a tenfold difference or, or an order of magnitude difference. Um, and this is not really captured. And, and there is a famous saying uh, by Robert Solo, who, who said that in 1987, uh, you can see the computer age everywhere but in productivity statistics. Mm -hmm. And so he, he, he was kind of pointing at the fact that by then already we should have seen some more effects. Okay, by today we do see some more effects, of course, with... Uh, uh, with ICT contributing to, to GDP growth in many countries, and uh, you know, we have an acceleration technology diffusion, and so on. So, so we do see some productivity effects, but I think these are really second-order effects. I mean, the first-order uh, effect is in a different realm, is in a different different dimension that is in data processing, which is not captured by GDP. And so my idea here is to, okay, use also a different measure. I mean, use them simultaneously to measure different things and as a different measure of, of development of our uh, capacity. Because, okay, the question then is, okay, and that would be like our volume of data or our overall computing power in the world, okay, something like that. Um, 
yeah, because I think I think it is um, it is interesting to to ask ourselves the question like w- what is the ultimate um, value that we would like to to measure, and that comes back to the initial question that you asked me in the beginning of this conversation. That is, what is our what are our goals in life? What, what is that which we which we want to maximize? Uh, it's probably not really GDP, not not really global GDP. But we don't know what that would be because we don't know what our ultimate objective is. If we if if all we carry is paper clips, we, why would we bother with GDP? We just should measure the number of paper clips. Uh, so in, in this in this sense, um, because we don't know what is that we ultimately care, so we cannot directly measure that. But I think uh, since we are seeing this tremendous growth. It's important to 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 measure how how fast it's actually happening, because it probably it indicates that it is what we are um, pursuing right? as, as as the humankind. Yeah, and I think that there's there's a lot to to unpack and and discuss here, but maybe one um, you know just to help motivate the the concern that GDP is kind of failing in a systematic way with respect to the computational or digital revolution. Uh, the two examples that I think of are how much better video games are than they used to be <laughs> and the amount of uh, enjoyment that people get out of that. And um, and that seems like a big deal. It's obviously it's a big industry and so it does contribute to GDP and it's measured in that way. But is that kind of capturing all of the the value that's being created there. Um, and then the other example, I'd be curious what you think of both of these examples um, that comes to mind is when uh, when Napster came along and um, and essentially the IP barrier uh, around music distribution came down for a, for a brief window and what had been kind of locked up on a, on a physical medium and was therefore costly to copy became essentially costless to copy and millions of people downloaded millions of songs onto their hard drives and they had access and they and they presumably enjoyed um, listening to this music and so on it was information that was stored on lots of different hardware on lots of different hard drives that had been you know in a much more constrained space before and that affected um, human consumption and but in a way that you wouldn't have been captured by gdp so i'm curious if you think of either one of those examples is, is getting at what you are talking about there or is there or is there more to it or difference or something different to it um, yeah I agree that uh, these are good examples of uh, of like the failure of the standard industrial measures to capture the development of the digital economy indeed like video games or uh, or like computer software more generally and actually, even computer hardware. These are these are uh, things that uh, record like very fast decrease in relative prices. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, computing power is is getting cheaper and cheaper at uh, at fantastic paces. Uh, and like in line with that, also um, the let's say performance. Uh, that is needed and also that is eff- effectively used in video games is uh, is growing ext- extremely fast. So, uh, so the realism of of the picture, of course, has mm-hmm. improved tremendously okay, over, the, over the last uh, decades. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, the the other example was was more like more about protection of intellectual property rights, right? So, so uh, indeed, we're seeing a trend. I mean, that was maybe one example in the past, but. But these days, just just the bands themselves immediately post their music on, mm-hmm. uh, publicly for free. Basically, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the change in the business model, uh, things are available easy and then in an easy way. And then what they do earn, hope hopefully, <laughs> earn their money from is is the concerts. Uh, not really that that uh, helpful in the COVID era, but it's right. another another issue. Um, but I guess it's really ultimately driven by technology. So, uh, because um, we have now the technologies that's which make it so easy uh, to copy and so and, and so difficult to 
protect uh, these rights, then we just see this spontaneous shift in in our uh, in our expectations on what should be available for free and what should we pay for. Like I don't know, we, we it, it it was obvious for us that if we buy music on CDs, we have to pay for that. Right. But now if we uh, if we get our music through through I don't know. Uh, YouTube or whatever, it's kind of obvious to us that we should not pay for that. So this is just a shift in perception. But it also illustrates the fact that um, you know, economic rules in the digital world are somewhat different and, and we are failing to capture the specificities if, if we only focus on the old, old measures that we know from, from the industrial era. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And just to maybe put a fine point so folks understand the move that you're making here is, you know, one set of critiques about GDP is that it's not, um, it's misaligned in some sense with what we quote unquote really care about or what's really important. And so this is the, the line of, of, of folks who are interested in developing alternatives like a gross happiness index or, mm -hmm. you know, the idea being that, you know, we don't actually care about how many tomatoes or eggs or, uh, you know, pairs of jeans or cars we produce, but we ultimately, those are all just inputs and are only important and only have value in as much as they contribute to human happiness. That's one thread. You have a March Rosen, uh, Martha Nussbaum and others who have talked about uh, the capabilities approach and what we care about is, mm -hmm. is autonomy and the ability of people to live kind of flourishing and complete lives. And again, consumption is part of the story, but it's not the whole story. What I take is actually your, you, again, correct me if I'm mischaracterizing your views, but I, I, what I take is actually that you're not that far off of the capabilities approach in the sense that you go back to this concept of instrumental convergence and, mm -hmm. you know, essentially you could look at instrumental convergence as each being components of maximizing autonomy or related to the concept of autonomy. And the capabilities approach is, is very closely uh, as a close cousin to the notion of, of maximizing autonomy. But, but you, you kind of avoid getting entangled in some of the philosophical debates. Maybe they, these are good debates to have, but you sidestep those. You don't directly engage those, at least in this work, um, and argue about what capabilities are important or not and how to trade them off against each other. Mm -hmm. You kind of go back to you know, something maybe a little bit more measurable, which is this, this total data processing. At least that you take that to be related to local control and and maybe related to values like happiness and capabilities but it has this it, it's essentially like gdp what you're measuring is the production of something and gdp measures essentially the productions of goods and services and mm -hmm. what you're kind of thinking about is that's not complete and we should be looking at the production of, of data storage and process production storage and processing of data again is mm -hmm. that a is that a fair characterization of how you might fit in your um, your contribution on the debate about GDP with some of these other theories. Yeah, thank you very much for reading my book with uh, such conscientiousness, <laughs> such attention to detail. It's exactly is exactly as I would uh, frame it. Uh, indeed, uh, indeed, I I just take the the sum of the four instrumental objectives uh, and I call it local control. Uh, I don't insist that this is the way it should be called, but I wanted to have a, a brief term that would ex, uh, explain the, the totality of the four instrumental goals. So I think, uh, yeah, local control is, is, is my view. Um, and I'm, no, I'm not engaging in, in philosophical debates. I, I, I actually try to be as, um, <clears throat> I mean, as positive in the sense of positive science, like understanding how the world is as possible uh, instead of engaging in normative debates on what what should be and what we should should or should not do um, I think yeah I think uh, that would be my my point of departure mm -hmm. uh, my, my view yeah so so well you know now that, now that you've said that of course I want to take the conversation at least a, a little bit in a, in a normative direction because you do talk about um, you know public policy and, and what kinds of risks we, we face uh, right now mm -hmm. as, as a global society. And 
and there are several that you that you spend some time unpacking and, and discussing and, at, at some length and at least offering um, some initial thoughts about how we might uh, try to address them. So two that that struck me as as particularly fleshed out in the book are concerns about uh, inequality and um, and this is related to automation of employ of, of jobs and the like. And in particular, you you discuss this potential for the creation and growth of a of a essentially quote unquote a useless class of folks who um, essentially there is no way for them to contribute uh, productively to the economy. And then and what would the social consequences of that be? Um, and then you, you spent some time talking about the potential existential risks associated with um, general artificial intelligence or super intelligence. So maybe let's we could start with the with the inequality concerns or the job displacement um, concerns and then talk a little bit about uh, uh, down the road, the super intelligence concerns. So so what is the useless class? How, how is it related to artificial intelligence? And, and is this something that you, that you see on the horizon? OK, so the. Um... The term useless class copyright goes to Yuval Noah Harari uh, in his uh, books. He, he was using this, this, this uh, term, and I'm just, just copying the, uh, the label because I think it's helpful. Um, uh, so the idea here is that, of course, uh, it's different what we are seeing right now to what we have been seeing uh, since the Industrial Revolution because since the Industrial Revolution we have been seeing uh, mechanization of, uh, of, of of labor, okay. So replacement of people with machines, mostly in in hardware. Uh, what we're seeing right now uh, with uh, the digital revolution is automation. That is replacement of people with machines in software, uh, and that's a different different story. Um, so there have been tasks which previously had been, you know, performed only by people. And then, after the Industrial Revolution, you had these tasks performed by people with the use of machines. Okay, so um, it was it would be people who would like steer the machine or provide the the, the, the information, provide the the instructions, and the machine would, would would do exactly as as programmed. I mean, as as instructed, uh, like a driver in a car, right? So it's a tool in our hands. Um, but with automation, we, we, have, we are seeing that the cognitive work performed by people now is being replaced after, you know, this physical part has already been, been, been replaced. So, uh, so then it creates a, an increasing number of tasks which, uh, which can be performed completely without any human, uh, uh, human input. And of course, the discussion is still open if... Um, um, if that means, if, okay, if emergence of more and more tasks like that means that there will be um, fewer things left to to be done by people, or the things that are left to be done by people would require incrementally more and more skills and education, and uh, and maybe you know some um, some predispositions that maybe not all of us have. Uh, so, so you know, th this is this discussion whether it's really going to be the case, or maybe we will always be that in ingenuous and create new tasks for us to do, which will also carry value and so on. So, so we have this discussion, uh, but it it, it happens uh, clearly that certain jobs are being automated. Um, so people ca people can of course, go to, to different jobs which have not yet been automated. But then the question is if, uh, how fast, okay, this process of inventing new uh, new jobs will be relative to the, to the pace of automation. Um, my perception is that most economics literature actually is too conservative in this regard and kind of makes it, Makes themselves, you know, happy with with the historical evidence, which was that uh, that there was always new jobs created, and there was always uh, new tasks and, uh, and new ideas, and, and you know, people found ways to uh, to work and, and to, to be productive. Um, but I think what, what this really misses is the fact that some of the tasks, you know, even if, if complex or uh, sophisticated. Now they're 
starting to be fully automated, okay, completely replaced, uh, completely replaced people. Uh, so it's no longer that the, the machine is a tool in our hand, it's just um, an actor in itself, right? So it just, just does uh, a certain task without any human input. Uh, and that, I think, changes the, the story. Okay? If, if we see more and more tasks fully automated, then actually the, 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 the prospects of creating a, a useless class, as Harari put it, uh, would be more, uh, more possible. Um, so that could that could also uh, rise to inequality, and also it has to be kept in mind that already the world is uh, is unequal. Uh, already, you know, the the adoption of industrial technologies has been um, delayed in many places in the world, and they're only only de only catching up only now. So, and there is you know quite a lot of uh, agrarian societies still in the world. So, so arguably. Uh, there is a lot of inequality, not just in terms of, uh, okay, wealth, but also in terms of technology yeah, that is being mm -hmm. used. Okay. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. So, uh, Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I was. Um, I'm just thinking about the kind of dimensions of the of the consequences of uh, of this potential or this possibility of display of broad scale displacement of people from the economy. It seems. And in in you discuss three, at least three dimensions of, of issues that arise out of this. And one is kind of, as you were saying, inequality or just income, right? So most people get their money <laughs> these days from working. And mm -hmm. so if people yes. don't have jobs, they, they don't have a source of income. Now, there are proposals like the universal basic income and the like mm -hmm. uh, that potentially could make up for that. But we don't we haven't adopted them, but 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 they've been proposed. Another dimension is in terms of meaning that people derive a lot of meaning uh, from from their work and from their participation in uh, in the workforce and their jobs and it's a, it's a way to socialize and the like. And so, um, if folks are displaced from employment, then then the, that source of meaning goes away. Um, and then finally, the the there are political consequences here as well. You you, you know offer a, a story. Um, at least a potential story where the growth of human rights and, and equality and so on, at least in a, in many places, and the world has been kind of came about in part due to the distribution of economic power, uh, which itself was due to the fact that um, the economy required information processing that was occur was happening in people's brains, and people's brains are widely diffused, and everybody has one, and so. Uh, there was a kind of egalitarianism built into the way the economy was developing that then fed back into politics and morality and law and otherwise. And if we see a, a reversal of that trend um, and, and lots of people are no longer uh, essentially have value, quote unquote, value in that, in, mm -hmm. at least in that economic sense, that that will end up uh, influencing the shape of, of morality, law and politics going forward. So, so I'm curious about, again, that's just a, a brief summary. So if there was anything you wanted to, to add to those dimensions, um, but then also what do we do about it? Is there anything that we can do uh, as a matter of public policy or law uh, to, uh, uh, to help address some of these concerns? Okay, so, so maybe a, a disclaimer first. Uh, I have to say we're only scratching the surface here of these issues. And <laughs> even in my book, I'm only scratching the surface really. So uh, yeah, it, it requires a lot of more... Uh, thought and discussion. Uh, okay, so um, one worry that one could formulate, okay, thinking about uh, the development of our societies, okay, is that, okay, we're seeing that, um, you know, there is, more, there is a clear tendency to, you know, from kind of uh, societies which were uh, uh, you know, either feudal or had slaves or had um, extremely extreme inequality in terms of, of of rights, right? In terms of extremely unequal treatment of people, uh, mm -hmm. we're seeing a clear trend towards more equality, towards universal human rights and and democracies in many parts of the world, and, and so so that's what I perceive a, a very good trend, which uh, I'm happy to observe. But the worry I have is that 
it could be the case is that we are generally learning more and uh, more and more about the world and and so we, we care more we we just develop also in terms of our morality mm-hmm. that could be one view but like a conflicting view which I, I don't really have enough uh, evidence to to disprove is that it could also be the case uh, that this is all happening because of the economic development so uh, so indeed it was the case that you know in the agricultural economy the the, the main factors of production were, were really uh, agricultural land and the physical work of the peasants and and so the owners uh, of the land had tremendous power and you know some some places the peasants were really really efficiently slaves of the landowners uh, but that, uh, and then also in the in the early industrial era, you had the capitalists who had a lot of power because capital was scarce and produced a lot of revenue, um, and there was concentrated in relatively few hands. So it was again very very high inequality, uh, and actually inequality was growing in the first uh, decades of the industrial era as the capitalists accumulated their capitals. But then it changed, and it changed. Um, Precisely because it was no longer hardware that was the bottleneck of growth and development, it was not no longer uh, like performing the physical action that was limiting our capabilities. It was the information that we, uh, the instructions and information that we could provide. And indeed, as you just just pointed out, I mean, this is something which is widely distributed. Every one of us has one brain. Okay, it's impossible to own more brains, and so therefore, uh, we have uh, this big tendency towards equality because the human brain was the only source of very valuable instructions provided to to in the economy. Um, but these days, now the instructions are getting. Uh, decoupled from our brains, okay. And more and more instructions come from other sources in our brains, okay. From from computer code, from uh, from AI ad- algorithms that learn based on data, um, and they are not that dispersed, right? The ownership of them is actually very concentrated. Um, so that is uh, a shift in the uh, in the power, right? So so I mean. If power is kind of proportional to your contribution to value added, okay, maybe not per- perfectly proportional, but at least you know, positively correlated, that, that, then you can you can you can kind of think that uh, these developments shift power in re- from being relatively dispersed to be much much more concentrated. Uh, and okay, maybe we would not forget the, the moral developments that we had in the past, and maybe we'll develop further into the direction of uh, of democracy and human rights and inequality. But there are worries, okay, technologically driven uh, worries that uh, this this trend may reverse. Yeah. So this is a depressing thought. So, and I've taken up a, bu- a bunch is, of your yes. time. So, so maybe. Uh, we could end uh, the the discussion with with any thoughts you have on is there anything we could do um, kind of if if we're smart enough to recognize that this is a potential trend on the horizon is there anything we can do to get in front of it or are we is it is it just determined that the that the that this will just play out as it's going to play out and, and and we don't have much say about about where things are going to 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 land yeah. Um... I thought you were expecting me to uh, to also talk about artificial general intelligence. <laughs> which yeah, was, I think we're just gonna we're, we're just running. I don't want to take too much of your time, so sure. I think we're gonna be have to have to have to end on on inequality and any thoughts you might have on that. Yeah, because that would be yet another potentially depressing thought that right. I have <laughs> in, in the book. Um, um, and that would actually, you know, strengthen this this thought so so there are ideas that you know if, if there if there emerges a superhuman intelligence uh, it, it may well become a singleton so just like a unique uh, decision making uh, agent uh, and so that would be the extreme of inequality in that direction um, 
No, but you asked if there is anything that, I mean, if it's going to play out as it's going to play out. My intuition is really uh, kind of like that. So um, I think like we tend to overestimate our powers when it comes to global issues. Uh, but I may be wrong, so I don't know. Um, but I, I would expect that the, 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 well, our policies will be very reactive and late mm-hmm. compared to the very fast uh, dynamic changes and the technological landscape that we're observing. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an important point. And I think, you know, as, as someone who works in the, in the area of law, and I, I spend a lot of my time working on climate change, the, the limits of human mm-hmm. uh, policy institutions are, are pretty apparent. One of the things that I do, if I'll, I'll offer my my small shed of ray of light and, and see if you, <laughs> if you if you block it off or, or if you if you find it useful, is that um, it is true that governance institutions have often and currently in contemporary society lag um, economic institutions. So AI obviously has been quite broadly adopted in, in you know by economic actors, by industrial actors, by uh, uh, you know, the media companies and the like, and, and it's been much slower to be incorporated into legal institutions. But one could imagine uh, a world or um, some uh, some polities emerging that were much more sophisticated in their integration of these technologies. And if we think of governance as, you know, as, as being deeply uh, about information processing and the like, it's at least theoretically possible that governance institutions could emerge that incorporate some of these tools in ways that, um, you know, kind of preferentially enhance the ability of human beings to control the world through policy uh, rather than just kind of being passive uh, in the in the sense of, of these kind of global consequences. Um. So that makes me think about the the idea by uh, by a physicist called Cesar Hidalgo. Uh, he 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 thought he said that um, well, if you don't like your uh, politicians, automate them. Okay, so maybe the the trend will be towards uh, more inclusion and more participation by also by by automating some 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 of the the, the tasks that have been thus far performed by by our, our representatives okay because that is hard to to include many people in participation and you know so 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 typically the political process is that you know they are elected and then the the only participation that we have is to you know elect again new representatives uh, in four years or so mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So, so maybe that is uh, one trend. Although, again, if, on a more uh, negative note, Yuval Noah Harari says that maybe we should expect digital dictatorships. So, right. okay, again, we don't know, and it's not clear that uh, it, the future will play out in the positive way. Right. No, it, it is certainly open. I mean, the future is always open-ended, and and and, and these are very different uh, potential branches on the horizon. So, well, thanks very much. I appreciate you take the time to chat with me today. Uh, It was a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much.